From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and we welcome you to the Holiness Podcast. We are glad that you decided to join us today. And we are carrying on a topic and subject that we began last month when we examined the theology of enough. Just to give you a little reprise of the conclusions that we reached, last month's message included these words. Holiness preaching today connects with people in the pew when it dares to address their relationship with possessions and money. As Luke Johnson suggests, the way we use, own, acquire, and disperse material things symbolizes and expresses our attitudes and responses to ourselves, the world around us, other people, and most of all, God. God's gift of possessions presents us with earthly choices that reveal our inner motives. Responsible stewardship flows from a right relationship with God and others. And we concluded last month that sanctification alone, that living, breathing, dynamic relationship with the living God through the Holy Spirit, it alone can restore us to a lifestyle of carefully managing God's gifts. Now, we're going to talk today about God and money, about God and possessions. And we live in a culture that deifies the desire for money and for riches. And so for Christians today in our country, in the United States, it is a perpetual battle. David Platt says we live in a materialistic culture that constantly contradicts the Word of God. Now, we're going to be exploring that by looking at two textual passages. We're going to use 1 Timothy 6 as our primary passage, verses 10 to 16. And if you're following along with your Bible, I invite you to turn there. And then about uh, two-thirds of the way through our study, we're going to stop and go back to Luke chapter 12, where Jesus addressed this forcefully, but echoes everything that Timothy, uh, that Paul was teaching to Timothy in our textual passage in 1 Timothy 6. Now, right up front, let me just be honest with you. It's, it's almost difficult, painful, to speak the truth about how obsessed and overcome we are with materialism in our culture. Let me make some reflections and observations based on 50 years of pastoring. I think people resist teaching about holiness for the primary reason that they have a sense, if not 
a clear knowledge that to study holiness will call into question every part of their lives. Because holiness, as we understand it, and as we've taught it for the last two years, is a living dynamic relationship with God the Holy Spirit, where he is allowed, God is allowed, through the leading of the Spirit who indwells us, to be in complete control of our lives. He is Lord. He is Lord over everything. Now, let me be perfectly honest with you. I think in our culture, the one thing that people would be extremely hesitant about is the very thought that God would be in charge of their possessions, their money. Because somehow we have allowed to cultivate within the Christian community a widespread acceptance of the fact that we own some things. And yet holiness calls us to that great scriptural truth which is that ownership and stewardship are diametrically opposed to one another. We don't own anything once Jesus becomes Lord of our lives. We are simply stewards of all that we have. And that brings quite a sense of upheaval to most of our lives when we are really ready to say to the Lord, I want you to be in charge of everything that I am a steward of, that it appears I may possess, but which really is yours. You know the definition, <clears throat> excuse me, of stewardship is that everything I've ever had, everything I have, and everything I ever will have is not mine. It belongs to God. This business of money, and possessions uh, pervades many of the difficulties in our societies, uh, in our society today. I've learned pastorally that money issues are one of, if not the largest culprit in difficulties in marriage and certainly in other relationships as well. Well, here's a dictum I want to give to you because I've been saying it and believing it in my heart for many, many years. I believe that when superfluous wealth and abject poverty exist side by side, God has something powerful to say. That actually is the primary reason that I chose uh, because I believed God was calling me into the Salvation Army, which makes an open and outward commitment to the poor and to those who are disenfranchised in our society. Okay, let's look at 1 Timothy 6. I want to read these six verses. It's a short passage. And then uh, in true expository style, we will work our way through those six verses one at a time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But we have food, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I don't know if you've studied that passage before, but it certainly does get your attention if you're sitting and thinking about it in terms of our own lives. Verse 6 really is the theme of our teaching today. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, Paul only uses this word godliness in the pastoral epistles. Peter uses it in his letters. The word is made up of two small Greek words. First, the preposition ou, which means good or well, and then the verb sabamai, to be devout or to have a godly attitude. So godliness is nothing more or less than holiness. When Peter uses it in, in uh, 1 Peter 3.11, he says, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The word holy there is hagias, the word that means to be set apart, to be holy. Holy conduct and godliness is our goal. This is from Peter who said earlier in 1 Peter, Be ye holy even as God is holy. So here's the point. Godliness is holiness. And holiness with contentment. This passage is about holiness in the matter of earthly possessions and money and riches. I heard of a man named Jack, typical of, of a few people that I have known who made a major discovery about, uh, about the importance of giving their possessions to the Lord. He was saved in his early 60s, and his life just took a whole different turn. And this is what he said. My plan, he said, was to retire, buy a German sports car, and play tennis. <laughs> but then he shared, by God's grace, before I could put my plan into action, God intervened. Jack shared how God had worked in his life, not just saving him from his sin, but saving him from himself. Today, Jack uses his previous job skills to serve the church and the needy in his community. He leads a ministry to orphans in Cameroon. What a joy, he told the church, to see the smiles of children as they push to get a seat on your lap and hold your hand because they have no earthly father and you are telling them about their heavenly Father. Then he concluded, This is the plan God had for me, and the thrill and excitement of it far exceeds retirement or any sports car. Well, that kind of change is what takes place when we take seriously 
the teaching. You remember Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and money. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Now, I thought my dad made that up. Uh, I've heard that all my life. <clears throat> but here it is, and it's not the only time it's in the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll find uh, two or three places where it says the same thing, except in, instead of bringing nothing, it said, naked I come into the world, and naked I leave it. But this is an important teaching for us. Sin in relation to possessions is viewed as possessiveness, disregard for the rights and needs of others, irresponsible use of God's gifts, self-centered motives in the use and accumulation of things. Well, all of a sudden, we're using very contemporary language. Sanctification restores us to a proper relationship with possessions and money and things. And underlying it is this reality that anything in the world doesn't survive our death. Possessions are not eternal in any sense or form. Now there's a lot in the New Testament about the teaching we're uh, bringing to the table today about the deceitfulness of wealth, about favoring the wealthy with places of honor, about rich young rulers who won't submit to Jesus' commands, about lavish bigger barn builders we're going to look at in a minute who were fools, and encouragers who sold property to meet the need in the church. There are tragic stories. All you have to do is think about Ananias and Sapphira or Judas and you realize that to make God sovereign over your possessions is a very important thing. We brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. Now, the world doesn't live that way. Last time I mentioned, uh, because it had just caught my eye on Good Morning America about three years ago, so much that I wrote it down, Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. Mr. Wonderful, said on Good Morning America, we need to teach our children that hard work produces economic success, and that's what life is all about. Well, folks, that's the world we live in. That's our culture. The lure of financial success is acclaimed and touted all around us. For millions of Christians in America, the dominant expression of the American dream is, I can have anything I want. I can do anything I want. I can accumulate as much as I want. Well, God's word says you either do that or you become content in godliness and holiness by making the Lord first in your life. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Let's look at verse 8. And this begins to get us into uh, some of the meat of things. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, of course, <clears throat> we live in a different world. 
There are so many more goods. There are so many more people. Uh, the world we live in is so much more complex. But the truths of Scripture remain the same. What should be our attitude to material things? Paul says, if you have food and clothing, we should be content with that. Now, you see, this points out necessities, not luxuries. He calls them food and clothing, the what to eat and what to wear, which Jesus told us not to worry about because God takes care of us. It's interesting, the word for clothing also can be translated as house, not just clothing, because the idea is a covering. And so many scholars believe that food and clothing and shelter all should be included in this simple teaching. After all, if you have food and clothing and shelter, then you have the minimum. It certainly isn't the maximum that's permitted to a believer, but the minimum that is compatible with being content in godliness. This is clear because Paul has already portrayed God as the good creator whose gifts we are to receive with thanksgiving back in chapter 4. So God does give us gifts many times beyond those necessities of life. And he's going to say just a few verses later in verse 17 of chapter 6 that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, this doesn't mean we're free to go to the opposite extreme of extravagance. There was a wonderful and important conference in 1980 called the World Evangelization Conference, uh, Luzon Committee in Switzerland. And they drafted in a document that has guided many evangelicals for the last four decades, a commitment to simple lifestyle. Listen to this and think about your own life. We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations, and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us, together with members of our family. What a practical and helpful document to call us to consider the importance of living a simple lifestyle. Necessities, we prioritize those. Luxuries, we minimize those. It's like last month's lesson. Enough versus excess. Now, I have to acknowledge, and of course you know, that for every person, these decisions are going to be different, and there are so many things that come into play. But we must ask the question, am I thankful and satisfied with what God gives me? Now, to be sure, money is not evil by nature. However, money in the hands of sinful people, uh, which was all of us, <laughs> 
can be dangerous and deadly, Jesus himself says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Once you and I realize that we are the rich, these words should shock our system. Now, let's take a minute here and let's put a myth to rest. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, that saying of Jesus is recorded. But you'll remember he goes on to say, Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I have heard some remarkable interpretations of that particular teaching of Jesus. And most of them are driven, I believe, by the desire that surely Jesus doesn't mean that the way it sounds. Now, Mark and Luke, I'm sorry, Mark and Matthew use the word for needle as tafis. But Luke uses a different word. The word is balane. Luke alone has balane, which besides being an older term, is the peculiar word for a surgical needle. So all of a sudden, any suggestion that the needle is anything but a needle is cast out. Thank you, Dr. Luke, for getting us straight on this. Now, if you want to check that out, go to any word study. In particular, I would suggest Vincent Word Studies, Volume 1. Go to page 407. And he talks about this interesting thing I've heard of many times in my life where people said, well, what Jesus was referring to was a needle gate in uh, Jerusalem, in the wall of Jerusalem. And Vincent simply says, that is outrightly a myth. There is no such thing. Well, what does it mean then? It means that it's very, very difficult for someone who is wealthy or rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I think the more we consider what happens when you begin to acquire wealth, you can see a lot of the truth that is uh, in that statement, that important teaching by Jesus. But now let's be honest about it. Most Christians just don't believe Jesus when it comes to this one. Most people in our culture and in our church believe, well, many in the church, believe that wealth is always a sign of blessing from God. And friends, that is taught nowhere in the New Testament. It can't be found. And we, on the other hand, have almost no category for understanding wealth as a barrier to God. And yet that is an overwhelming New Testament truth and teaching. And so we are so easily deceived. This is where I want to stop and go to our second text because what Jesus taught is the precursor and the foundation for what Paul is now teaching to Timothy in our text passage. So if you turn to Luke, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 12, we're going to read a very familiar 
portion of Scripture. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. <clears throat> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So right away, we're looking at a family dispute here. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I should say that the real problem uh, is identified in the various teachings we're looking at and in the rest of the New Testament is not that money is evil. There's nothing intrinsically evil about money. It's greed that is the evil and the issue. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Mr. Wonderful, did you hear that? <laughs> A man's life does not consist. People in America, did you hear that? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Well, here again is the description of the two ways of living that are mutually exclusive. You either store up things for yourself, or you are rich toward God. The teaching is startling in its clarity. There's no doubt about what Jesus is saying here. Isn't it interesting as you uh, see most of the parable is about what the man is thinking to himself and saying to himself. It's full of I's and my's and I will. It's my fruit and my barns and my corn and my goods and my soul. And therein lies the folly of ownership and of thinking that what we have belongs to us. Now, I could preach another whole sermon on believing that what we have, we earned. <laughs> because it all is the bounty and gift of God. So he stores up things for himself, but he is not rich toward God. And I want you to notice uh, just the next verse, because this is found in a little different uh order in Matthew and Mark. It's part of Matthew 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount. But immediately Luke records that Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food. And then he goes on to say, uh, 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They do not labor or spin, but even Solomon in all his splendor is not arrayed like one of these. And so he tells us not to worry for your life and what you will eat and what you will wear. This is all to address the underlying problem of greed. Our uh, rich fool had laid up things for many years. And I want us to think about that part of the story for just a moment. His goal was to ease back and enjoy himself with his wealth and belongings. No concern or responsibility for anybody else. He was just going to retire. <laughs> now, we were talking, there's three of us here in this room, and uh, two of us here are nowhere near retirement, <clears throat> which is part of our culture's uh, manipulation of, uh, of our lifestyle and understanding of the cycle of life. Unfortunately, I stand here in my eighth year of retirement, and I live in South Florida where I find myself surrounded by men and women who are spending their final years on earth enjoying the pleasures of this culture. I, I'm sorry, I can't help but, but observe this while I'm reading what this man's aim and goal was. But Christ never calls us to this kind of retirement. There's nowhere in Scripture. Now, this may be a revelation, folks, but there's nowhere in Scripture where God calls healthy people at a certain age to stop working. Nowhere do we see that God's design for productive minds and bodies is to lie on a beach, ride on a golf course, or sit in a fishing boat. The entire concept of saving money so that we can live a life of ease and self-indulgence has no biblical basis whatsoever. We need to think about that. His goal, this rich fool, was to ease back and enjoy himself with his wealth and belongings. And if I believed half of the advertisements I saw on TV, I would believe that that is supposed to be the goal for every person in our country and in our culture. Now, let's be clear. I'm not speaking of men and women who, whose bodies have worn out and are unable to work. I'm not speaking of men and women who retire from a job in order to work in ways that won't give them a salary. In fact, the best thing about retirement for me, I don't think I'm working any less, but the best thing about it is that I'm able to work only in areas where God has gifted me. And I find it to be very fulfilling to continue on after, uh, in my case, the Salvation Army told me, it's time to retire. <laughs> I know many men and women who are no longer employed and of all ages up into their 90s who are working for God in their community and around the world in all kinds of ways. Now let's go back to our first Timothy text because the last two verses are a continuation of that teaching of Jesus, but in a very straightforward way. 
Verse 9. People who want to get rich. Now I should observe something here. This is not addressed to rich people. He's going to address rich people when he gets down to verse 17, and we're not going to deal with that today. He is addressing the what are called the covetous poor. He's addressing poor people who want to be rich. Now, can I be honest with you? I believe most people who would be called poor in this country would tell you very quickly they want to be rich. And that's part of the problem of allowing an economic system which lets us have billionaires and multi-billionaires and the economic disparity which now has reached a point where people are realizing not only is it offensive to God, always has been, in fact it's an abomination to God for someone to gather indescribable amounts of riches while millions and millions of people are struggling. But it's also very damaging to our culture itself. I've had many conversations with uh, young people or people who are struggling who would very quickly say, oh, I think you should be able to make as much money as you can. Why? Because they want to be the one who strikes it rich and who is able to live this life of luxury and ease. What I'm saying to you, to you and suggesting to you is that that whole kind of thinking in our society is contrary to everything that is taught in Scripture. Look at verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. This is an insidious enemy. People who want to get rich first fall into temptation. Now, the desire is not what Paul condemns. The desire to be rich is what Paul condemns because that leads to temptation. The word in the original could be trial or temptation. And the word falls into a, a trap, temptation and a trap or a snare, speaks of that which keeps one imprisoned. You see, moreover, beyond that, it leads to many other foolish and harmful desires. Now you see how that one desire results in many more foolish and harmful desires. Sin never walks alone. The desire to become rich causes the person to fall into other cravings. I like to preach about what do you crave. But a person who craves riches generally also craves honor, popularity, power, ease, the satisfaction of the desires of the flesh. They all spring from the same root selfishness. And you see the result is that it plunges men. That word actually is the word that means to drown. In the King James it is drown. That drowns men into ruin and destruction. Now look with me at verse 10. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now you see in verse 9, it's wanting to get rich. In verse 10, it's being eager for money. In both cases, this is describing those of us who are not rich <laughs> pursuing contentment through earthly possessions and earthly gain, which is the counter to our theme verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Many people misquote this verse <clears throat> by saying money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that Paul speaks against. Money itself is not evil. In fact, money does wonderful things to further God's kingdom. It supports missionaries around the globe. It helps organizations fight for causes. It, it supports churches and church leaders. It feeds the hungry. It clothes the poor. While God doesn't need money, it all belongs to him anyway, he uses money given by generous people to help those in need. The problem happens when money controls people. And this verse tells us people who are controlled, who love money, are controlled by a ruthless, insatiable master. For the love of money can never be satisfied. Greed is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice, too, a distinction. It doesn't say that even the love of money is the cause of all evil. It's the cause of many kinds of evil. It's not the only cause of evil. To master money, instead of becoming its slave, we must get rid of the desire to be rich. This isn't easy in a materialistic society. But instead of rationalizing our love for money, we need to seek God's help in overcoming these desires. Now, verses 9 and 10 complement each other. Paul outlines the steps taken by those who have given in to the attraction of pursuing contentment through earthly gain. The outcome was inevitable. Look at the two verses in comparison. In verse 9, some want to be rich, some fall into temptation, which is immediate trouble. Those people are trapped by inappropriate desires and their lives are ruined and destroyed. In verse 10, same story, second verse. Some are eager to be rich. Some wander away, which is gradual trouble. And then these people experience increasingly painful results of their greed. What a sad reality that many have, because of their eagerness for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's a summary of this text, these six verses. John Stott says that the apostles' essential emphasis is clear, namely that covetousness, wanting to be rich, is a self-destructive evil, whereas simplicity and contentment 
our beautiful and Christ-like virtues. In a word, it's not poverty against wealth. It's contentment versus covetousness. That's the lesson of the text. Now, much of this speaks for itself. Let me remind you where we started. The way we use, own, acquire, and disperse material things expresses our attitude towards ourselves, the world around us, other people, and God. There are some great issues we could explore. I don't think we're going to go on with this series, but we could talk about choice of lifestyle, about building an estate. That's essentially what the rich fool was going to do, was build an estate. We could talk about generational wealth, which emphasis in our country has resulted in the incredible economic inequality and a reality where a handful of people have as much money as half of the population of the United States. The Bible not only raises these issues, it warns strongly about their danger. And that's the lesson. The lesson is that the desire for possessions and wealth and money is dangerous. I want to tell you my favorite story again in clo closing and apply it to our topic this month. It's a story about Brigadier Joseph Corbell, a Salvation Army officer, who served as a young man with his wife in the country of Czechoslovakia in the 1950s when it was overrun during the war, <clears throat> following the war. Uh, Brigadier Corbell, then a lieutenant, was arrested and put in prison. They were, uh, they were corps officers or pastors of the, the Prague Citadel Corps, which is right in downtown Prague, Czechoslovakia. Anyway, uh, he's very well known for his first book, which is In the Presence of My Enemies, and it tells the story of uh, either 10 or 11 years of, of imprisonment and torture. His son was murdered uh, during that time, uh, during the occupation. And uh, he, that book is very well known, but he wrote a second book. And in the second book, uh, he tells this story. The second book is called When the Gates Are Opened. He says that uh, they were in their flat or their apartment, basically two rooms plus a, bad, uh, plus a bathroom, which was on the second floor over top the church. Now that's something that often was done back in those days. It was done in, in this country as well. My parents were uh, ministers, Salvation Army officers. In our first two appointments, we lived in an apartment above the church. So it was a very common thing. But he said one day, he said, uh, things got very quiet in their house. Now, what made that alarming to them was that they had a two-year-old son named Helmuth and a six-month-old daughter named Alenka. And... The children were in the bedroom, and 
the Corbells were in the living area. And uh, I remember him saying, the sudden unusual quietness alarmed us. Now, parents out there, you understand what I'm saying. If the kids are that quiet, you better find out what's going on. So he and his wife slipped over to the door and peeked their heads around the corner just in time to see their two-year-old son, Helmuth, very gently and carefully placing a rubber stamp on the head and cheeks and chest and arms and legs of his six-month-old sister. It was the stamp that they used for the songbooks or the hymnals in the church. And it stated, it said, property of the Salvation Army. Now you can envision that. This little six-month-old girl stamped all over her in red, property of the Salvation Army. Now when Brigadier Corbell visited us in our very first uh, appointment as Salvation Army officers, it was in Waycross, Georgia. They were retired and they were made available to do special meetings. And this wonderful couple came and they stayed in our home. But when he told our core people that story, this is what he said. He said every time he thinks of that, it reminds him that property of the Lord Jesus Christ should be stamped all over our lives. Now, I don't know anywhere where it would be more of a witness to the world, to the power of a changed life, than if it was stamped all over how we treated money and possessions. You see, in the 21st century America in which we live, I'm afraid the world has come to be too much with us. The secularly worldly culture, and that's any culture, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, if it's not the church, then it is a culture which inevitably will be based on strength and power and fame and glamour and riches and influence. Christians are always facing the danger of compromising with the powers that be in their culture. And as we've seen today with wealth and hedonism and economic ideologies. Dear friends, I believe this is a matter for those of us who desire to make Jesus Lord and seek to live holy lives. But we have become too comfortable with Caesar. When we compare the dominant gospel of our culture with the gospel of Christ, we know that our relation to this culture must be as a people called apart. That's what the word church means, the called out ones. And that's what the word holy means, to be set aside for Christ. My prayer for us is that maybe we will stop and think. Maybe we'll sound an alarm in our own lives and take a good look. We're only scratching the surface, but take a good look at 
what we desire, what we crave, particularly in terms of possessions and money, because it expresses our inner priorities when people see how we care and how much we care about possessions. May God help us to take his teaching and the teaching in the New Testament seriously and to recognize the difference between necessities and luxuries. We need to do it practically, and everybody will come down in different places. But I think if we hold our lives as a searchlight from God's word into how we live, most of us will be convicted to do better with how we handle possessions and money in our lives. Well, uh, I said before we started to record this that we're going to kind of shake things up today. Uh, people think that you're messing with them. Why don't preachers preach and teach these passages? Well, there are a lot of reasons. <clears throat> I've always felt badly for pastors who had to satisfy a board in order to keep their job because they're only able to preach about things that keep their congregations happy or at least challenged without offending or stepping on too many toes. But you know... Uh, it's a wonderful thing to let the Lord step on our toes and then to change our hearts. And our prayer is that that will happen. So I hope you receive this teaching in the way that it uh, is offered to us today. Uh, it is an important one. And we'll look forward to next month. I hope you will join us again. This is a time when we take topics that are related, that are related to holy living, and we do intense Bible studies and we try to dig deep and we try to be honest and we try to make a difference so that we can all live in the light of God's word and live in ways that please him as we seek, as the Bible has challenged us to be holy in all we do. God bless you and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.